All right, so we got episode number 46 with the Sports Psych MDs. That's BMDs. Let's go. And a BA. And a BA. <laughs> so we have another interview for you guys today. We're going to keep this string of interviews going. I know Armin and I, we uh, talked about at the beginning of the year, our goals were to interview several athletes, several coaches, several mental health professionals in sports, and sports journalists, anyone around the game. So today we have a sports journalist that joins us. Um, but she's also so much more. Gabrielle Starr with two R's, founder of Girl at the Game. And we get into all that. It's a, it's a great interview to learn a little bit more about what it's like to be a woman in sports. Star with two R's. R's for ready and righteous. And resilient. And resilient, yes. You had an opportunity there. Yeah. <laughs> two, two R's for ready and resilient. You know, like, that's what Gabriella is, man. She came out firing. She's one of the, the more knowledgeable people that I've actually come across when it comes to, to stats and history as it relates to baseball. Like, she was just really blowing me away. Uh, not just actually with her baseball knowledge, but honestly with her knowledge on social justice and just things that were just very educational for me as a man, understanding what women in sports go through and you know, women in sports journalism go through. Really, I think as men, we need to be very, very understanding of and sensitive to mm-hmm. because they have a seat at the table just like all of us. And Gabrielle is gonna, gonna deliver a very powerful message on that. So we're excited. 100%, I mean, she's a walking encyclopedia, if anything, not even with sports and statistics, just with every issue we threw at her, we threw at her everything we got in the tank, every issue in social justice. How uh, female's representative in the sports industry, she was prepared with information, with historical facts I didn't even know. And good personal um, stories. She got personal stories. I mean, she, uh, this, honestly, I've been working here for, I want to say close to two months. She's been one of my favorite interviews so far just because she's been so substantial and interesting with every, everything she said. She was very excited and passionate to approach each subject. Uh, and when I spoke with her over the phone before this podcast, I asked her, now, is there anything that you don't want us to talk about and anything you're uncomfortable with? And she said, nope, I'm not uncomfortable with anything. Throw anything at me. I'm comfortable. And if I'm not, if I'm not comfortable, I'll still talk about it. And guys, I told her, the, I told her on the podcast, she made me feel so comfortable talking about uncomfortable topics. And guys, honestly, this is a great podcast. You guys are in store for a good one. Yeah. And I, I can just tell she's a, she's a great journalist. And I'm glad we got someone like her on because people in the media, journalists, are the individuals who will, if they're doing their job, they're putting pressure on the organizations, on the ball clubs, on the, on the athletes, on the coaching staff, on these individuals to improve and to grow and to mature. And she definitely has her, her finger on the pulse when it comes to what's going on in society right now and where we need to improve as, as a whole, not just within the sports community with regards to equality and justice for all. So um, I'm, I'm so glad that she chose to go into sports journalism. She's mainly covers the Boston Red Sox and, and Boston area teams. And, it, and there's been a lot going on in that city, which we'll get into. And I'm just glad that she's, she's in that, this field in order to put that necessary pressure on these these movements that that are going on in our country right now with, with regards to equality and justice for all that's right man girl at the game she's the girl of the game right she's uh this is her company um she's gonna tell us all about this really exciting organization that is doing all kinds of 
really incredible things, really with respect to you know, empowering women and influencing women and uh, enabling women to be influencers among the sports community. And um, it's great. And I think you know, their mission is they're, they're gonna wanna bring as many amazing women on board to be a part of shaping the, the sports narrative, right? And become a part of this legacy in equal parts as men. And we're so excited to bring her on board. Yep. All right, so cue the music. Let's get it rolling. Let's go. Welcome back, everyone, to Sports Psych MD's episode 46. Today, we have a very special guest who's no stranger to success. She studied American history at Harvard University, and she's been writing history ever since. In 2017, she founded Girl at the Game, a sports media company dedicated to giving women a platform to bring their unique voices and perspectives to sports. And she's been pretty successful herself, interviewing individuals such as Jessica Mendoza, Keith Folk, and Tom Karen. She's not afraid to tackle hard issues such as social justice, the role of females in the sports industry, or the Red Sox finish, finishing 19 games behind first place in the American League East last season. Everyone, please welcome the girl of the game, Gabrielle Starr. How are you doing today? Wow, guys, that was the most incredible, that was incredible. intro I've ever received. <laughs> that was Thank good. you so much. I am like in shock right now. That was amazing. Thanks for having me. Ah, thank you, thank you. So one question we have for you that we ask all of our guests, what's your hype song? My hype song, oh, okay. My hype song, and this is gonna sound cheesy to anyone who has been to an opening day at Fenway, uh -oh. is Let's Go by Lil Jon. Okay. Because oh, it, nice. it has that it has that crazy train <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne thing going. Yeah. Um, but I'll just put that on when I'm driving somewhere to get myself psyched up. And I'm like, yeah, okay, let's do this. That's cool. That's, that's, that's cool. probably been my forever hype song. That is Anything awesome. Anything by Ozzy Osbourne definitely gets you amped up for sure. No question about Especially it. Especially when it's associated with opening day at Fenway. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the Pats coming out with their Super Bowl trophy. The Sox coming out with their World ah. Series trophy. And you're just like, dude, this is insane. memories for me. So you've, you're from Boston. You're obviously, are you a fan of all Boston sports? Honestly, not really. I mean, I guess de facto I have to be kind of, but I grew up loving the Red Sox. I grew up right down the street from Fenway and my dad's a really big Pats fan. But for me, it's really just the Sox and the Celtics. I enjoy Bruins games. I really can't afford to go to a Bruins game. They're so expensive. But mm -hmm. I do, as someone who grew up ice skating, I, I do enjoy hockey. It's just not something I really cover because I'm not enough of an expert but I do I do enjoy going to games um, and I've only ever been to Gillette to uh, see Beyonce and Jay-Z so that can tell you how much I'm invested in football. Did you uh were you a softball player growing up? I played softball for a couple years in junior high but I actually have cool. a um the reason that I kind of gave up those was because my dad taught me how to pitch overhand I wanted to be a baseball pitcher and I went to a small Jewish private school and the boys played baseball and the girls played softball and I went to my coach who was also my gym teacher who hated children so I'm really not sure why you would become a teacher I said I want to play on the baseball team and they said no you're a girl you play on the softball team and I said okay but I'm I pitch like I, I said I pitch like a boy but I mean I pitch I 
pitched baseball. I didn't, I wasn't a softball pitcher. And so the day for tryouts came and I got on the mound and I was like, you know what? I have this chance to show them what I can do. I'm at least going to do it. And maybe they'll put me on the baseball team. So I gave them my best pitch and the coach laughed me off the mound and stuck me on JV outfield. And I kid you not, like it has pissed me off to this day because I just don't understand a grown up doing that to a child who has like a dream. But uh, yeah, I played softball for two years and I really liked it, but I was not an outfielder and I went, I was in a small private school. So it's not like it was really a serious competitive thing, but I did enjoy being on a softball team and playing with some of my friends. Did you go to Gann Academy? I did go to Gann Academy. I didn't play softball in high school, but I did go to Gann Academy. Yeah. I have a lot of friends in the Boston area. Um, cool. Um, speak, speaking of softball, I don't know if Tori and Armin knew this, but one of the co-hosts here is a two-time back-to-back softball champion and is intramural college. Um, my, so- my sophomore, junior year, my Dirty Josh and the boys won back-to-back champions. And in the I think in yeah in junior year in a championship game, we went up against the baseball team, and I don't know how oh. we just walloped them. And we were going for a three peat, but then wow. Corona decided to just ruin everything. But like we were so hold on, you guys were playing softball or baseball? We were playing softball against the baseball team okay. playing softball. Okay, it's surpri- well, surprisingly how different it is. Good. Oh, I, that's so good. It's, yeah. it's definitely a top three accomplishment I have in my life. I'm not afraid or ashamed of that whatsoever. Um, okay, so Gabriella, uh, as you know, um, we just a big theme we do is we discuss in the interplay between sports and mental health key pillars, which are gratitude, resilience, and mindfulness. We're also very big on discussing social justice issues, which is something we have in common. Well, we have a lot in common with the girl at the game. So I'm just going to go right into it. Athletes and famous individuals reported experiencing racism at Fenway Park in Boston. In 2017, Adam Jones reported being called the N-word. Tory Hunter put a no-trade clause into Boston in his contract after having racial slurs directed towards him at Fenway Park. Last year, the Red Sox reported seven incidents of racial slurs last year. Michael Wilbon of Pardon the Interruption explained that the racism in Boston he experienced is why he does not appear on the local radio station, W-E-E-I. So what I want to ask you is, do you think the, the small percentage of black players in the MLB is one of the reasons why racism is so prevalent in Fenway Park in Boston? Because uh, black players make up 7.7% of Major League Baseball, compared to the 68% of black athletes in the NFL and 74% of black athletes in the NBA. So do you think that's the reason why? And on top of that, how do you think MLB is attacking racism compared to other professional sports? And do you think they're doing it the right way or wrong way? Ooh, all right. Let's see. I'm gonna have to try and I'm gonna have to try and break this down. Yeah, I'm gonna have to try and keep track. That's a that's a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's see. Okay. So take your time. Um, the first thing I'll say is that I was at the game, the Adam Jones game in 2017, and. When I found out about that, I was absolutely horrified, as I think that most rational people with a soul would be. Um, And though I know that I have never heard anything like that being said at Fenway Park, I also know that there are a lot of hateful people who give Boston a bad name. And so I'm unfortunately not surprised by that happening. Um, I think that when you asked about 
the number, because I've actually, I actually had just been looking at these numbers myself last week, the 7.7% of black athletes in major league baseball, that number hasn't been above 10% since 2004. And what's surprising to me is that throughout that, the Red Sox have had a number of black players. And until this winter, they had three on the roster, which is a lot compared to a lot of other teams. But now that David Price and Mookie Betts are on the Dodgers, it's, I believe Jackie Bradley Jr. is the only current player on the 30 man. But that being said, I don't think it's so much, you know, like, I don't think you can blame the Boston Red Sox for the, the entirety of Major League Baseball not having enough black players. I think it's an issue of the fact that Major League Baseball gets a lot of players from the Caribbean, Latin America, South America. And that makes up a huge percentage. And if you look at the Red Sox lineup, we have a lot of players who come from Curacao, Dominican Republic. And so to the uneducated person, some of them might look black, but they actually are not what you would call African-American. And with the Red Sox, I have always been very critical of them in terms of saying, you know, changing the name of Yaki Way last year just to Jersey Street wasn't enough. You know, it's it's important, but it's not enough. Like you need to do more. The problem for me is that I see the Red Sox now making a serious conscious effort to be outspoken. You know, the way that they responded to Tory Hunter with his statement earlier this summer was very accountable. Um, they really owned up to it. They told the public a lot of stuff that the public didn't even know, being like, if you don't think this happens, like we are telling you these things happen, like stop claiming that they don't happen. And, you know, they've been making an effort in a way that I think is important. It's definitely not enough, but I also don't think that a certain extent blaming them for things that happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s in a completely different era under different ownership is a fair thing to do because after a certain point, you are just holding them back when they are trying to improve. And when this society just cancels people instead of giving them the opportunity to show that they've grown and changed, what you are actually doing is preventing society as a whole from improving. Because if someone is trying, like in Judaism, for example, we ha there's a thing in Judaism, a person who, is, who has wronged you is supposed to ask you for forgiveness three times. Like seriously ask you, not just be like, hey, I messed up. I'm sorry, like forgive me, but make a sincere concerted effort to apologize. And after the third time, if, if the aggrieved party does not forgive them, then the weight of the situation is now transferred to them because they are refusing to acknowledge that a person can, be, can become better. And I think that what's important with the Red Sox and with any other team in Major League Baseball and in sports as a whole is you hold them accountable, you call them out, you do all of that. And then you wait and see what they do next because change doesn't happen overnight. And what I've seen with the Red Sox over the last couple months, especially, and over the last year or so, is the Red Sox doing the work. You know, they, they changed the name of the street, but they didn't stop there. Mm -hmm. They didn't say, okay, now that his name is gone from the street, um, everything's better. The Red Sox were never racist. Like, there is racism in Boston, and it's a huge problem. But the Red Sox are... Yeah. you know, they're doing things to improve and it's not going to happen overnight. And I wish it would happen faster, but at the same time, I'm not going to like, it really frustrates me when they're like, when people bring out, you know, the Jackie Robinson thing, 
I obviously wish that they had signed Jackie Robinson in 1945 when they had the chance. And it's disgusting that they were the last team to sign a black player in 1959. I talked about it on one of my shows last week, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, how long are we going to talk about 1959? Talk about what they're doing in 2020. Talk about what they're going to do next. Talk about what the next 10 years look like. I, I think you need to know the past and then you need to, you need to, take what's what happened in the past and use it to make a better future that's that's really great no i I i'll just say this uh i mean i think it's very compelling you know uh what you're saying absolutely and on an on a you know from another perspective you know i i think that uh the race issue is so much deeper you know than just the that 7.7 percent uh statistic related to the number of of I guess, African-American players represented uh, as black athletes in baseball. I mean, the race issue, it doesn't just come down to racial slurs. It's, you know, all kinds of racial insensitivities and it's much deeper than just the N-word. Absolutely. Um, You know, there are several different ethnic minorities uh, that are represented in Major League Baseball uh, that should have a voice, you know, that deserve to have a voice and, you know, people looking out for them. And when it comes to racism, it's really, it should be considered an issue that affects all of us, that we all should be concerned about. And one of the things that, you know, often causes me concern is when, you know, certain groups are targeted as either the, the subject of, or, you know, example of, or epitome of racism. And when we start doing that, it's just more division uh, as it relates to the whole narrative around it. And it really needs to be something that we all just care about collectively and are working to, as she so eloquently put it, just taking take steps to get better. You know, just actively taking steps to get better. If we all are 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 about that, then you know, I think that's really the, the way to move forward. Definitely. I mean, I I think there needs to be accountability across all kinds of racism and hatred. And, you know, as a Jewish person who's been fighting back against a lot of this anti-Semitic stuff lately, it's crazy to me how people can just decide that it's, uh, it's unacceptable to be racist in one way, but it's acceptable to be racist in another way. You know, if you're against hate, you got to be against all forms of hate. There's Mm -hmm. really no room for debate there. I know I just rhymed and it's embarrassing, but um, (laughs) I'll push through. It's, it's just, there needs to just be so much more accountability. And for a lot of sports leagues, there's just, especially MLB, there's just such a low bar. Like, you know, they just, they'll tolerate so much in the name of the the game and they don't seem to realize that the game would be better without these issues. You know, they, the game would be better if they were just more vocal because all these people being like, I'm no longer a Red Sox fan because you put a Black Lives Matter mural on the wall. Good. We don't want you then. If you are against this, then we don't want you. Mm-hmm. You're just telling on yourselves, get out. Yep. Absolutely. I think I want to highlight what you were saying earlier about kind of cancel culture and how uh, people sometimes are afraid they're going to put their foot in their mouth when they have these conversations. But I think ultimately what we're talking about is we need to have these tough conversations, these organizations in these big cities that represent represent the whole city of Boston, they need to have these tough conversations. And the, the solution is going to, it's going to be an ongoing thing with multiple layers, just like the problem's been ongoing for many years. So I appreciate having you on this podcast to talk about this, to have a conversation about this, because I know it's, it's difficult to talk about. So hopefully we can continue this conversation. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's hard stuff. And I know that in the past, like I've either said the wrong thing or I've been afraid to say anything because I'm worried I'll say the wrong thing. And what I've learned from asking advice from friends of mine, um, who have different lives than I do, different colors of skin than I do come from different backgrounds. I went to them and I was like, look, I'm not asking you to educate me because it's my job to educate myself, but I want to know how I can help you. And they said, well, the first thing is you're not always going to say the right thing the first time or even the second time. What's important is how you react when someone who knows better than you, knows more than you, tells you that you said the wrong thing. How you react to that, to being told that you're wrong and what you say next. Because the people who double down, who refuse to be told that you're wrong, I mean, there's so much willful ignorance that comes from just being so so embarrassed that you said the wrong thing. And it's like, okay, cool. Guess like there have been so many embarrassing moments in my life. I've said the wrong thing so many times. It doesn't come from a place of hatred. And I appreciate being told that I'm wrong by someone who knows better than me. Because I would I would rather be in a room with people who are smarter than me so I can learn something from them than be in a room where I'm the smartest person and I have no one to talk to and no way to improve myself. Well yeah. right. So um if uncomfortable conversations are up your alley, then stay tuned because the next question is just as uncomfortable. Gabrielle. Oh, great. How do you think Major League Baseball is handling mental health? Earlier today, we interviewed, we had a lovely conversation with David Cotterell, who's a professional footballer, the U, so a soccer player um, in Europe. And he confidently stated that most, if not all, footballers suffer from some sort of mental health disorder that not only affects their uh, athletic performance, but they don't feel comfortable opening up to their teammates or coaches or their team out of fear for losing their position on the team. So you have had a lot of experience interviewing and talking and covering um, Red Sox players and baseball players and a lot of people involved in the in prof in professional sports industry. So from your experience, how prevalent do you think mental health is in MLB? And how do you think MLB is handling these mental health issues? I mean, I think that mental health is a huge problem in this world in general. It's my firm belief that every single person in the world should go to therapy at least once in their life. Yes. Just to get, just to, get to know themselves better. I've been in and out of therapy since I was in high school. Um, I've dealt with serious mental health troubles of my own and watched fellow family members go through it. One thing in mental health that really, in terms of baseball, that really stuck out to me is something that I talked about with Keith Folk when he was on Girl at the Game. And the reason I'm sharing it is because he talked about it on the show, so it's not private, obviously. Um, right. He was talking about a couple years after the 2004 World Series, he went you know for like a knee mri or something to at the beginning of a season and the doctors at the red sox told him that they recommended like seriously recommended hey he get a surgery which would require require him to miss a huge portion if not all of the season and he said to me at the time i was going through a divorce he said and i couldn't lose my wife and lose baseball at the same time and Knowing him for a couple years now and knowing what a caring person person he is and how much he loves the game of baseball and how much it affects him, um, I really took that to heart because he didn't feel like he was in a place to say to the people who run the Red Sox, you know, I can't, 
I'm going through a divorce. I can't lose. Like he just, he kept that inside and he just refused to have the surgery. And a couple weeks into the season, I think it was in April, he was like benched and he needed the surgery anyway. Mm. And people in Boston were vilifying him and it was really rough. And it ultimately ended up with him retiring for the first time. And that was like it. And so this guy who was the closer who brought us our first championship in 86 years for a time, he was kind of vilified by the fans because they didn't know. And one thing that I always say when it comes to stuff like this is, you know, nobody is entitled to know your entire life. Most people on Twitter don't know my entire life, but when people don't know your entire life, the problem that you're going to face is that they are going to make assumptions based on what they do know and what they see. And I said the same thing with Kyrie Irving last year because he came out, you know, he was supposed to stay with the Celtics. He said in summer 2019, I'm staying. I'm signed. Like, he said last year, I'm staying, whatever. And then in the summer, he goes and leaves for the Nets. And it was after a really weird, bad year for him, too, with the Celtics. And he comes out like this winner and he says, Last year, I was going through serious mental health issues and I didn't want to talk to talk about it. And, you know, there was stuff going on with my family. I think he'd lost a family member too, like his grandfather and all of this stuff. And he kept it inside. He didn't feel comfortable sharing it. And I said, that's heartbreaking. That's terrible. And I'm someone I don't, I never really liked Kyrie. I'm much more of a Kemba girl, but I said, I, you know, I totally feel for him. He wanted to leave. He did what was best for him. He needed to take care of himself and it was nobody's business that he had the, was dealing with these problems. They're personal. At the same time, you can't blame the fans in Boston when all they see is you promising to come back and then you announcing that you're leaving for a different team and no explanation. And I think that that's one of the problems is people are afraid to talk about these things. Exactly right. Gabrielle, that's... It's so amazing that you, uh, that you brought that, that particular topic up because that was really for us uh, what was the inspiration for this podcast. Um, you know, I remember... Kyrie? Well, the, the story of the athlete and, you know, having to adjust to, you know, either, uh, you know, some form of, you know, trauma or, um, you know, some major life event like, you know, grief and loss, um, adjusting to an injury, just... You know, these facing that of, mental health yeah, stigma, these, not necessarily having anywhere to go exactly. within your organization or your or your team, out of fear. So Kevin Love, right, a former team. I was just going to say his Irving's, Player Tribune article was life changing for me when he wrote exactly. that. Exactly. Yep. Former former teammate of Kyrie's, and uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Tori and I, we were doing this this uh, this big conference together we had to uh, do a presentation and we did it on uh the the theme of sports psychiatry very much influenced by that same uh, uh kevin love article where we were just uh profoundly impacted as guys about to go into uh the practice of psychiatry as professionals um and recognizing that there was this huge underserved community literally right there guys that we watch you know every day that you know we've uh, seen as heroes, you know, since we were children, these guys need us, you know, these guys need us on the front lines to help, you know, fight their battles. Um, but yeah, Kevin Love's story and now all these other stories that have come forward. Um, this is just like Tori was saying, what's all about is just stimulating, sparking, influencing the conversation, you know, to get things going so that 
these organizations will begin to, to really understand the, the value of these investments, investing in mental health, um, mental health treatment for their players. I totally agree. And I think that one of the ways that baseball has been failing in this is with their minor league system because mm. minor leaguers live in terrible living conditions and make no money. So you have these young guys who have no job security and are under high amounts of stress all the time. And I have friends who are former minor leaguers, some of whom made it to the majors, some of whom didn't. And they've talked to me about how stressful it was that every single season, you know, you're just terrified about whether or not you're making the team. And you're sharing, you know, you're seven guys sharing a two bedroom apartment, you're sleeping on air mattresses, you can't afford food, you never get to see your family, and you have no job security. And I've always said, well, if Major League Baseball just took a little bit better care of these guys, you know, if they weren't so stressed out, if they weren't so anxious, if they weren't, you know, living with like basically a sense of impending doom all the time. If, you know, unless you're like a Mike Trout or a Bryce Harper, where it's very clear that you're only in the minor leagues until you kind of reach a certain point. You know, if you're one of those players who the team is actually just kind of building around and you're, and they know that you're only there temporarily. A lot of these guys over 75% of minor leaguers don't even make it to the big leagues. But I've always said, if these guys were just taken better care of, even a little bit, if they were able to feed themselves, if they were able to afford basic living conditions, they would be much happier. And I believe they would be much more productive players who would benefit the major league teams whose systems they're in. And it seems so obvious to me. It seems so straightforward because baseball does pay these guys, you know, they pay them signing bonuses, they pay them salaries and over 75% of them don't go anywhere. They don't make the big show. And so that's money that you have put into these guys. It's not very much. These guys are severely underpaid, but it is. It's like $500 a week, I think. Right now they're getting like 400 bucks a week because the season's canceled. Some of these guys get $1,000 a month during the regular season and they get nothing during the off season and they get nothing during spring training. So they're expected to show up to spring training, work their butts off, not even getting paid. And then hopefully, hopefully they impress in one of the few games in which minor leaguers are used enough to be considered a potential call-up from AAA, if they're even at that level. And it's so insane. These teams at the major league level, like for example, in February, the Mets unveiled their new multi-million dollar renovation to their spring training facility in Florida. And even though the Mets are only down there for spring training, and then, the se- and then the facility is used only by minor leaguers during the rest of the season, the Mets said that the minor leaguers were not allowed to use the main clubhouse because they should have something to motivate them to get to the big show, even though otherwise that clubhouse is just completely empty during the regular season. And I said, I'm pretty sure that wanting to be able to eat is motivation enough to want to get to the big show. Yeah, this is something we talk about all the time is like, when are these big organizations, these big, big ball clubs going to come to the realization that investing in all these things like you're speaking of, investing in the conditions for the minor leaguers, investing in your players' mental health and mental fitness is going to ultimately improve performance and your team's going to win more and then you're going to make more money because at the end of the day, it's all about the almighty dollar. But you, I mean, you talk about five tool players in baseball. The real tool is your brain. I mean, so much of sports is mental. 
And no doubt. it doesn't matter how freaking healthy you are. Otherwise, doesn't matter how big your muscles are, how much you can bench, how hard you can hit that ball. If your brain is not in it, and I'm seeing it right now with some of the guys on the Red Sox, if you are not in a good place mentally, it's it's not happening. It's eventually you are going to hit a wall, and it's going to hit you hard. And I I would like to think that sports are in a better place now because of athletes speaking out. But it shows you when someone like Kyrie says, I was too scared to speak out, that it's still not enough because, you know, people are weird in that they want to be able to relate to athletes on a human level, but they also want to be able to see athletes as like gods. And so when a, when a, when a godlike figure kind of seems human, it can be really jarring. And so even though you desperately want like all those magazines, you know, like people in Us Weekly being like stars, they're just like us, they fill up at the gas station but you don't want to think about them being like stars. They're just like us. They also have post-traumatic stress disorder. You want to think about how many threes they're hitting against the suns. Yeah. yeah. It's so true. And it's, it's interesting to, to think of Kyrie Irving uh, of all people being scared of anything or scared to say anything considering, you know, he says the world's flat, but yeah, yeah no, it's interesting. It, it's really interesting what you're saying. Um, and yeah, these athletes need a voice. Um, the thing is, they're players, and they're players under contract, and you know, there's a lot of things by virtue of those contracts that you know, compel them to, to really have to have a certain loyalty to the team and the narrative around the team. And if mental health and mental illness is considered a distraction, then you know, talking openly about it may seem disloyal to the team. So it, that's why it's really important for folks like yourself in the journalism community uh, folks like us, you know, in, in the front lines of healthcare and mental healthcare and psychiatry, you know, really stepping forward and being a voice for these athletes. Definitely. And yeah, and ideally having more stories like Kevin Love and people that will be open and honest about their mental health struggles. Because like you said, every everyone struggles with mental health issues. And if you yourself don't, then someone definitely you know or know of has. So yeah, I think this is a great conversation to have. I wanted to ask you specifically about your love for baseball. It does sound like baseball is your your true love, and obviously, I think growing up close to Fenway, that close to Fenway Park probably has a, a big thing to do with it. Uh, that's on my bucket list of places to go watch a game. I've been there, but it wasn't during the season. Um, just in a historic place. Well, you let so me know. A, I'll hook it up with tickets. That'd be awesome. Tell is us. Is that a, true? What? No, is that true that you'll hook it up with? Yeah. I would. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I don't know about Ben, though. He's a Yankees fan. I don't know if you mentioned yeah, that. Yeah, but too. Fenway Park. Fenway Park is Actually, legendary. a year ago today, I was at the Sox Yankees game with a friend of mine who's a diehard Yankees fan, and we were watching Mookie hit three home runs off the Yankees. Oh, that's Yankees. Awesome. So I go, I mean, I come from a family that's like based in New York. So we got some Yankees, got some Mets. We got, we got everything. It makes it more family. interesting. Respect the game. I would never pass up an opportunity to go to Fenway legendary ballpark most of my yankee fans friends tell me that fenway is the best place to watch a ball game that definitely is it's, it's also so cool how it's so old the seats are uncomfortable as hell but it is a great that's, place to watch ball game. That. that's fine i imagine it's similar to wrigley i, I grew up near chicago so i went to a lot of cubs oh, games nice. and those were always fun so those historic ballparks they're not the most comfortable um, but they're, they're definitely, you don't there's go something there for the comfort. You no. for the game. Exactly. No, the same way you don't watch a ball game for the speed of the NBA. You watch a ball game cause you yeah. like that yeah. slow pitch by pitch action that takes three and a half yeah. hours. Okay. Yeah. Yep. 
and hopefully, hopefully, you're mostly on your feet and not, not sitting down. Right? Yeah, or I'm on the floor crying. You know, it's, it's one or the other. <laughs> There's nothing better than it. I think going to a baseball game, like physically going, is nothing better than to a ballpark. Show up early, watch BP, get a hot dog, some sodas. You know, I was there like fun. six yeah. out of seven days a week by the end of last season. I moved oh. back to Boston from. I was in LA for two years, and I moved back last July. And by the end of the season. I was there like probably six out of seven days a week for the last two months or so. And I mean, like I got to see Carl Yastrzemski's grandson hit his first home run at Fenway in front of Carl Yastrzemski. Like I saw, I mean, I saw so many incredible moments where I was just like, and now thinking on it, like, I, I guess I haven't really thought about it that much because it's just like, I'm used to not being at the ballpark. Cause we had the off season. Then we had, you know, um, coronavirus but like when I really stop and think about it it's so weird that I have all this free time in the summer where I'm just like not at Fenway I don't know another another fun fact about me is that um for three or four years I worked at the concession stand in Yankee Stadium I worked like the kosher hot dog stand and I would have to show I would not have to I would show up like two and a half hours before first pitch to set up shop and whatnot <laughs> and setting up shop would take 15 20 minutes it was no big yep. deal and uh, so I would sit down and then I was boys and girls with like everyone who worked concession stands were cool so I'd literally make do a lap I would hand out like the free hot dogs we were giving out and people would give me like a free beer or free pretzel and whatnot and then by the time I'd finish my lap I'd sit down right behind right behind the dugout with free shit and I would just watch Aaron Judge John Carlston and everyone else doing BP. Oh, and that's epic. They, like, this is a really cool job, guys, but nothing will be cooler than that job. I will say I went to Yankee Stadium for the first time last June, and I went for Sox Yankees. And I will say that the concessions at Yankee Stadium are better than at Fenway. Not surprising because Yankee Stadium is really fancy. They have stuff like sushi and jumbo mozzarella sticks. Yeah, I don't know um, how I feel about that. But I'm vegetarian, so it's it's hard for me to eat at Fenway because they they haven't had a vet. They used to have a great veggie burger, and then after the 2017 season, they just got rid of their veggie burger for some reason. And so I subsist on tater tots and chocolate Ooh, shakes at the ballpark, which is really not oh good for you, you know, five, six days a week. It's delicious until, you know, afterwards. Did you go to Dodger Stadium at all while you're out here in LA? Yeah, I used to go all the time. I mean, Dodger Stadium, first of all, great veggie burger, uh, beautiful ballpark. <laughs> nice. I judge my I judge my ballpark trips on their concession, like, diversity Absolutely. because <laughs> I can't eat a Fenway Frank. I just can't. And I'm not paying $14 mm. for a Fenway beer. Like that's just not happening. I'm not stupid. Um, <laughs> but Dodger stadium had a great veggie burger. Oakland Coliseum had a great be- veggie burger. And that's the only good thing I can say about the Oakland Coliseum. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Do- I mean, Dodger stadium, I was at game three of the world series in 2018 for all seven and a half hours. And, um, Oh, that was that game. Wow. Yeah. By the time that game was over, I felt like I lived at Dodger Stadium. I like didn't remember my life before that game. It was it was pretty weird. But the funniest part was that there was a guy in our section who was a Dodgers fan. And he was wearing a brand new shirt from the team store. Like he had clearly just bought it that day. A lot of those fans out here. Oh, you know. One of those. Um, but he got super drunk so by like the seventh inning he's drunk and he's chirping all the Red Sox people in his section because it was like a section where visiting media 
like not necessarily reporters, but like it was tickets that were given from the Red Sox. It was like a section that was just like all the same people from like Boston who were given those seats. And so it was a section full of Red Sox people and then this random Dodgers guy and his girlfriend. And he's drunk and he's like chirping everyone. So, you know, then they stop serving in the seventh inning. But the game goes into extras. And so by like the 14th or 15th inning, this guy had sobered up and was apologizing for how he had treated us in the game. Like that's how long that game was. That guy went from sober to drunk to pretty much sober again. And the game didn't even end until the 18th inning. Wow. So what is your overall impression of uh, LA sports fans? They're interesting. Um, There are definitely some that are very, very passionate about the Dodgers. Uh, Obviously, huge Lakers city. I was very surprised. I didn't even realize that the Clippers had so few fans. Um, I only saw like <laughs> yeah. two Clippers. Well, they have more. Maybe now. it's better. Maybe hey, it's have, better now because because hey, uh, of Leonard. Doctor T over here is a Doctor T over here is a Clippers fan. Well, know. that's 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 well, good. I, I like that. I jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah, I don't claim them, <laughs> but. <laughs> well, yeah, I, but the, I mean, the Dodgers for the most part, like, you know. You can blame LA traffic for part of it, but a lot of their fans would yeah. show up late and yeah. leave early. Oh, yeah. And, you know, a lot of celebrities go just to be seen. Um, Rob Lowe's son is a friend of mine. And so, like, I was there with him. Uh, and it's, you know, he, he goes, Oh, Lady Gaga's in the suite next to ours. And I was like, I, Lady Gaga's from New York, man. Like, there's no chance she's a Dodgers fan. But, you know, right. I, that's, that's how it is. LA is just like a totally different animal. But then again, you also get, you know, you get Damon and Affleck in the Red Sox stands and stuff. So it's anybody's guess, really. So we have to ask, what are your thoughts on Mookie Betts and signing the long-term deal with the Dodgers? You know, at first I was like, if he doesn't want to be, like a long time ago, a couple a year or so ago, because this has been going on for like three years now. He was, I think he was insulted. They gave him a really low ball offer right after the 2018 World Series. Cause, you know, the second the World Series ended, he's the reigning AL MVP. He's reigning batting champ, gold glove, silver slugger, World Series champ, obviously. Young, too. And he's young and he's a homegrown guy. And the Red Sox are just absolutely terrible at developing their own players, especially pitchers, but just in general. I mean, they're, they're buyers, they're not growers. And, you know, that's fine, but you got to either be good at one or good at the other. You can't just like not do either, which is what they're currently doing. So at first, he, I think he was insulted. You know, it's like literally the month after, like the week after all this is going down, they're like, here, how about seven years, 220? And you're like, dude, really? That's your best offer? The dot, like there's still confetti in the streets. What's going on? Um, but as time went on, I mean, I think – you know, you can tell who really loves playing here and who just like, you know, likes playing here. It is what it is, wants to play wherever they're going to get the best deal. And that's totally fine. I just don't like when players are, you know, like he kind of made these statements when he got traded this winter being like, I really wanted to play here my whole career and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, if that was the case though, you would have entered negotiations with the team last summer but instead you publicly stated that you're refusing to negotiate during the playing time, like during the entire season. And, you know, right away with the Dodgers. And I think part of it's because of COVID and, you know, the impending free agency market's going to be really weird this year. But, you know, from what I've heard, he was really receptive to an extension with the Dodgers. And he was never like that with the Sox. And, you know, that's fine. But, you know, don't go out and say to all of these Sox fans, like, I wanted to play here my whole career. Like, Sox fans of all people are not 
stupid. We are some of the most passionate, involved people to the point where players want to leave because they just don't want that. But, you know, it's this whole, this whole idea of like, don't piss on my head and tell me it's raining. The same thing that the Sox ownership does to us now where they're like, we think we can compete in 2020. I think you're a double A team at best, but that's just me with my eyes that are watching you play games. Um, so, you know, with Mookie, I think he wanted what he, he wanted a really long-term deal. He wanted big money, which he deserves. I personally am not a fan of long-term contracts having watched Dustin Pedroia's very painful situation over the last four years. I'm so happy someone paid him and I hope he has the most success. Like I'm always going to root for him. I'm super bummed that the Sox messed up. It's 12 years, 365 million or something. Wow. Include, including the first years, 13 years, 392. Yeah. That's including the, that's a lot of years. That's a lot of years and a lot of money. He's, I, I mean, mean, he's my age, so he's going to be like 38 when that thing's over. Um, and it's just, I mean, that's insane. <laughs> well, not, not to throw another curveball at you, but you know, give, going back to that, the, the Mookie, uh, that's issue, just from the standpoint of marketability, you know, and, uh, and how that applies to you know, teams, you know, their, their team chemistry, you know, the connection with the fans and all of that. Is it possible that race was a factor in the decision with the contract? You know, I've heard some people say that online. And um, I mean, it's certainly a possibility. But, you know, he has never said anything to suggest that. And he's not a silent, like, he's not one of these guys who doesn't talk. You know, he's a very outspoken guy. You saw he was the only player on the Dodgers to kneel this week, which I'm like, oh, you know what? Just from an optic standpoint, the Red Sox would have had more than one the other night if Mookie was still on our team. But, you know, okay. Um, but then again, Verdugo did kneel, so technically it's a one-and-one one situation there. Just, just because, you know, everyone was looking to Boston to be like, how many players are going to kneel? Because Boston has this really bad reputation in that way. I don't... I don't think that Mookie would have stayed silent on stuff like that, especially given the fact that he was playing when the Adam Jones incident happened and, you know, all of the things that have happened in the last couple of years. You mentioned WEEI. I applied for a job there and they did not want me, even though I've been on their shows multiple times and they have no women and basically all white old dudes doing their shows. Um, but, you know, whatever. It's fine. Um <laughs> I think there definitely could have been incidents, but I think that if there had been, he would have said something. I really think it was a matter of the fact that he wanted a certain amount of years and he wanted a certain amount of money. And due to the Red Sox being very badly mismanaged from a financial side over the last couple of years, the Red Sox would have had to pay about $300 million in tax if they had signed Mookie an extension because of their luxury tax threshold. So if they had offered him the same contract as the Dodgers first of all there's no guaranteeing that he's going to take it and second of all they're paying almost double the contract just because of their own payroll and I mean that's a huge like I I to that point I'm like dude that's basically like you're paying almost 700 million dollars for a man that's a lot of money they could afford it certainly they're worth over three billion dollars but I understand rationally, even though it's their own fault that they're in this situation, giving ridiculous contracts to people. 
I understand why they said, you know, the buck has to stop somewhere. And as long as they go out, as their chairman, Tom Warner, said this week, which was kind of an admission because he said, you know, we're going to put that money elsewhere. And I'm like, oh, so you admit that you had the money. <laughs> um, cool. Because we thought you were poor. The way that you're acting, we thought you were poor, but okay. As long as Tom Warner says we're going to go out and take that money and actually put it towards making this team better, like full-scale rebuild of the pitching staff, fine. As long as you're going to be smart about it and you're actually going to do something with it. If you're just going to become one of these billionaire teams that cries poor and like acts like you can't afford players, like I'm going to call you out on it every single time I can because it's ridiculous. You're worth – they are – Fenway Sports Group is the third wealthiest ownership group in all of major sports. It's not even close. So, I mean, it's a ridiculous thing for them to do. At the same time, I understand both sides of the situation. I just wish that he had been more of a priority for them a couple years ago in terms of, you know, maybe not giving Chris Sale that extension, maybe not giving Nathan Evaldi that extension, even giving Steve Pierce like $6 million. All of it factored into the fact that they claimed they couldn't afford Mookie Betts now. And it wouldn't have been true. Um, but as to the race thing, sorry, I know it got off topic. No, it's great I, stuff. It's I really don't, I really don't think, I mean, he was very involved in the community here and he's very outspoken about things that matter to him. And he always has been, I think if there had been something like that, he would have said something. And I, from the bottom of my heart, obviously hope that there was nothing like that, but I just, I mean, he's never been the type to not say this kind of stuff. So it's, it's not. It just doesn't seem like that would be the reason, you know. Well, hey, I appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, gl I'm glad Mookie and Boston were able to get a, a World Series title um, a couple years back. Hopefully it works out well for both of them. Um, hopefully they invest some of that money into pitching um, so Boston can be back next year. If you feel, you feel like this season's already a lost cause. Well, I just got a text from my boyfriend saying that Ron Renicki announces Josh Osich and Matt Hall will start Tuesday and Monday against the Mets for the Sox, which is, he accompanied the notification with the words LOL, and that pretty much says it all. I mean, I'm just glad it's a shortened season because the Sox yes. already didn't have <laughs> good pitching going into a regular season before coronavirus, and since coronavirus, it's only gotten worse. So, you know, I'm never going to say that there's like an upside to a global pandemic that's killed millions of people, but the Red Sox are definitely benefiting from the fact that there are only 60 games to be played this season because 162 games of this would make me want to like feed myself to a shark. <laughs> no, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, so I just want to switch gears a little bit. Um, so I was looking at a lot of, I, I was like researching a lot of your blogs. Thank you. It's good stuff. Oh, no problem. I, in particular, I want to reference June 2017 blog you wrote, and this is like a quote, Pedro Martinez and David Ortiz are a living proof that there is a ripple effect that stems from athletes being good people, end quote. Much psychological literature supports that playing sports affects an individual's personality and mood. For example, there was a 2000 Finnish psych psychological study titled Personality and Mood of Former Elite Male Athletes, a Descriptive Study, which surveyed five different groups of Finnish athletes and one reference group, which is like a control group, based on four personality scales, extroversion, neuroticism, life satisfaction, and hostility. So athletes scored lower on the neuroticism scale than the reference group, and athletes scored higher on the life satisfaction scale than the reference group. 
athletes who are also rated as less depressed than the, than the reference group. So first I want to hear from Gabrielle, and then the two doctors can chime in. And I can chime in too if anyone wants to hear what I have to say. What is it about playing sports that alters and affects someone's mood and is for the better or worse? Or like, what, like what is it about sports that just changes your mentality and how you perceive the world? Damn. All right. I'm glad I'm going first because I can't follow two doctors. That's just not going to happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> talk about being out of my depth. All right. So I'm trying to remember the exact article that you're talking about, but I do know that just based on David Ortiz and Pedro, the point I think I was making was, you know, Pedro was the key in bringing David Ortiz to the team. He took him under his yeah. wing and David Ortiz yeah. was inspired to do the same thing for younger players, yeah. 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 especially yeah. batters. And sports is such a microcosm of our society. The values that you learn from playing on a sports team, even as a kid, you know, to play the game fair, to follow the rules, to believe, but also things like believing in the impossible, that miracles can happen, that you get a fresh start every single game, the same way every day when you wake up, you have a chance to be better than the day before. Um, I mean, these are things that you learn in sports and you see it on the field when you watch professional sports too, because I know that, you know, for better or for worse, every Red Sox game is a new game and anything can happen, even giving up seven runs to the Orioles. Athletes have the ability based on their performances on the field, but also on the platforms that they have with modern day technology to influence not only their teammates, but millions of people with both their actions on the field and the words that they choose to speak to the public on social media or, you know, even in an interview, anything. And they have the ability to affect serious change, but also like we saw when we were talking about with Kevin Love, to show you that you're not alone, to show you that the ways that you're feeling, because the ways that you're feeling aren't abnormal, that lots of people feel this way, that even your favorite athlete feels this way, it can make a huge difference in someone's life to hear that somebody who seemingly has it all, you know, superstar basketball player, millions of dollars, um, awesome dog and great girlfriend, seemingly, you know, everything going for him, that this, that these things happen to everybody. And, and from a veteran player standpoint, a young player is an impressionable person. And to be guided by either the right or wrong player in their clubhouse makes a huge difference. And the Red Sox saw this in 2017 because David Ortiz retired and he had been really not to go by his nickname so much, but he had really been the large father, the big poppy of the team. He was the guy that all of the young hitters went to for advice about hitting, but also just about, you know, being the kind of person that he was very charitable, um, loving, warm, passionate person. And respected by people even on teams like the Yankees I mean when the Yankees when he retired the Yankees were like we're just glad we never have to pitch to you again and you know because you hated him but you respected him the same thing with Mariano Rivera a, a player who falls under the bad influence of the wrong player it can affect you know how they behave in front of the world and on the field and off the field can affect their entire life and when David Ortiz was gone in 2017 there was a huge gaping hole both offensively because they just finished dead last in the American League in home runs that year but more importantly as people that team looked lost 
because they didn't have him and David Price tried to fill in, but that just was not the right role for him. And it negatively impacted that team in the clubhouse and the way that it impacted them in the clubhouse ultimately impacted them on the field. And they just weren't a good team. I'm not sure if that's what you were looking for, but that's what I got. Those are big, those are big, those are big shoes to fill right there. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> no. I don't, in fact, I, I don't even know if we really need to add I thought that. Was, that yeah, one. that was it's pretty good. I mean, what I, what I like about having Gabrielle on this show is that she provides such a unique perspective to the game. Like, not only is she representing, like, the journalism aspect of the game, but she's, rep- but she's representing, this is going to segue into the next question, just the, fe- the role of the females in the game. And this kind of, what I mean by that, I'm going to actually, I didn't mean to, but now I'll delve into this next question, is just, like, yeah, the, the, ro- the role of females in sports, in the sports industry, um, I think we can all agree has been grossly misrepresented and has and honestly, I don't even know how to phrase this question. I have in my notes, I have, let's discuss female athlete, female athlete sports, like Gabrielle talk. So I just, we just want to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah. How has it been like being a woman um, in sports journalism? You, met, you touched on it before when you were talking about how you interviewed for this job. Um, but yeah, if you could speak to that. The best and worst about being a woman in journalism, sports journalism. Oh, God. All right. Jeez, that would be a whole episode. But Absolutely. And also, what can we do better? What, what can the world and sports do better? That's, that's also what we want to hear, too. All right. So for starters, I'll say that being a woman in sports is both amazing and absolutely horrible. Um, to the point where a friend and mentor of mine, Joss Kleinschmidt, when we were talking about um, some other younger women that we know who were going to her for advice about being a woman in sports, like getting into sports journalism and sports media. She was like, my first advice is don't do it, which is half a joke, but kind of like, you have to really want it and you have to have a really thick skin and you gotta just like, not care what people think about you. And it took me a really long time because I didn't plan on becoming what I am now. I didn't plan, like I started Girl at the Game because At the time, I was a freelance beauty and lifestyle writer who had a nine to five at a tech startup in Boston, and I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. But whenever I would have feelings about the Red Sox, I wanted a place to write about them, and I didn't have that place. And so on a whim, I started a website, and then it just became this thing. Um, So it wasn't like, you know, I went to college for this, and I interned at this, and I did, you know, I didn't have the traditional path, like it just kind of happened. But I will say that on the one hand, it's amazing. I get to meet so many incredible men and women in sports and talk to them and learn from them. I get to interview them on my show and I get to read their work and they read mine and we encourage each other. The other side of that coin is that there are a lot of really nasty people in this industry and not only in this industry, but there are a lot of really nasty people who are just fans and they're not even trying to be in sports but they decide they don't like someone and they just go at it and they get their little mob and they go after a fellow human being. And I've never understood that where, you know, and it's especially worse. I will be honest when it's girls because women in general in life know that it is harder to be a woman in society than it is to be a man. They know about worrying that you're going to be one of the four women in this country who gets assaulted 
They know that it sucks to pay taxes on tampons, even though we can't control if we get our period or not. They know that it sucks to get paid less than men in most industries or not even get the job at all because they're a woman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, a million times. And so for me, what hurts more, you know, I get the typical men being like, get in the kitchen. This never happened to you. Shut up. You're a whatever, all kinds of awful words. But it hurts more when it's women because women know what women go through in life. And so it's kind of like, well, you should be on our side. You should be helping us make this world a more equal and welcoming place. And instead, you are proving to men that women are a certain way. You are showing men that women are a certain way. And that's been a hard part of being in sports is knowing that there are some girls who don't want to see other girls succeed. They don't want to make sports a more welcoming place for women. They want to be nasty and take down women who are already in sports, even if they don't want to work in sports themselves because they don't, they decide they don't like you. The same way, you know, sports fans decide they don't like a certain player. You know, Red Sox fans decided that they hate Pablo Sandoval. The difference is it's already harder to get your foot in the door as a woman. And so once you get in there, it's still hard to, you know, I mean, look at Jess Mendoza versus A-Rod in the ESPN booth. Jess Mendoza is an intelligent, smart, accomplished, educated woman. And there are people who just decided from the day she got announced as being in that booth that they just did not want her there. It didn't matter if she was saying the, exactly the same thing as A-Rod. She could say verbatim what he had said two minutes earlier. But she's the dumb bitch, and he's A-Rod to people. And that's just what it is. And as for the other part of your question about what men can do better, I think the biggest thing is just listening when women tell you their experiences instead of saying, well, maybe it was like this or playing devil's advocate or the number of times I've told a story and then a man's been like, that never happened. I'm like, so are you telling me that my own life experience didn't happen to me? How is that possible? Are you me? You know, I, like I've had tweets that have gone viral where it's like, you know, a joke, like talking about how women are sick of being quizzed by men about sports. You know, I've never asked a man to prove to me that he knows his sports, but I get asked all the time. And the number of men that reply to a tweet like that being like, this stuff doesn't happen. I'm like, well, if it didn't happen, then why are 6,000 other women retweeting it? Why are they responding to it being like, yes, so many times, like, if we are telling you that something happens, if we're telling you something is going on and you're not listening and being like, yes, and not, and not only that, but telling the guys in our mentions who are saying these things to screw off, then by not saying anything, you're becoming part of the problem yourselves because women need allies. They don't need silent people to just hit that like button. They need people to be like, dude, you're being a dick. And with all of the sexual harassment news at ESPN and stuff, that's another thing is like, if you see your friends demeaning women, those people should not be your friends anymore. You should be telling them that they are doing the wrong thing. Like if, you're, if your friends are like mocking women in a professional space, not only in a professional space, but especially in a professional space, like the number of times I've been made to feel really bad because I was the only woman in my office in previous jobs and no one said anything and they just let that behavior get like go unchecked. And it shows other people that it's okay. And women don't feel comfortable in their working environment. I had a boss that used to ask me if I had my period all the time. And I was like, dude, even if I do, it's not your freaking business. And that kind of stuff just 
like people will be like, well, that stuff happens. I'm like, okay, but just because it happens doesn't mean it's okay. This should not be a thing that just happens. Yeah, the stamp of stigma uh, has a wide shadow. You know, it just casts a very wide shadow. And honestly, it, it definitely is, is an issue when it comes to um, appreciating how aware women are when it comes to sports. And I just, you, you made me think about um, myself actually, and the number of times I've had conversations with, you know, uh, women that were friends of mine and, and yeah, exactly. I quiz them you know, on, on some, you know, statistic uh, that any sports fan would know. And, uh, you know, they looked at me like I was crazy, like they should have. And yeah, I mean, these are things we don't think about. Um, you know, and I definitely don't consider myself to be someone that's insensitive, you know, when it comes to these topics and, and, you know, I'm, you know, the biggest supporter of women empowerment and equal rights, equal pay. But I myself have definitely, you know, made that mistake too. And I, I so appreciate you bringing these things to light because we all need to hear about it. So, I mean, I, for starters, I appreciate you saying that. Cause I think that's like a thing is a lot of guys don't realize that they're contributing to this kind of stuff Yeah. because it's just such an ingrained part of like, you know, Oh, like for starters, guys being like, Oh, you know, sports, that's so hot. Like, it's just mm -hmm. like a part of us that's like sexual to you or not you specifically, obviously, but like, or, you know, Oh, if you, if you meet a girl who knows what, you know, a touchdown is marry her as if like it's not just something that we enjoy the same as you like I'm, I, I wouldn't marry my boyfriend because he knows what a double play is like it's just something that we both enjoy and I mean if I can tell a quick story so two years yeah 2017 November 2017 like the week after the Astros won the World Series I was out on a date I was out on my first date with my now ex-boyfriend in Los Angeles and it was, we were stopping by a club in Hollywood that his roommate, who was also his coworker was celebrating his birthday at, and we were waiting in line with a bunch of their coworkers and it was literally our first official date. So he introduces me around and they all worked at this big talent agency. And so it's me and like a bunch of like bros. <laughs> the guy I was on a date with was not a bro but the guys who worked there were very bro-y. And so he says, guys, this is Gabrielle. She's a sports writer. And it was like, you know the scene at the end of Lion King when the hyenas realize that they can eat Scar and they all just like descend on him and devour him? Yeah. I was Scar. And these guys are like, oh, so you're a sports writer? So like, what was so-and-so's ERA this year? How many games have you been to? All those kinds of things. And I was, you know, like answering the questions. And then this one guy starts chirping me and he's like, oh, the Red Sox sucked this year. They got booted out in the first round of the division series, blah, 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 blah. So I looked at him and I was like, so um, who's your team? He goes, I'm a Phillies fan. And he's like, okay, so to be clear, you're blasting my team for winning its division two years in a row and then losing in the postseason, but you're a fan of the oldest continuous franchise in Major League Baseball history that took 97 years to win its first of two World Series. And it was like I had kicked him in the nuts. <laughs> and he didn't speak another word the entire night to me. And all of his, but all of his guy friends were like, oh, damn, like, she really got you. <laughs> get and I was fucked. like, damn, but you know what? Like, it shouldn't have had to get, like, I enjoyed it and it felt really good. But it shouldn't have had to get to the point where I had to, like, verbally dismember somebody to prove that I was good at what I did. And 
I mean, my ex thought it was amazing, but um, like the, it was one of many times in my life that people were like, oh, I mean, there was like a Red Sox, someone in Red Sox media was like, so have you ever been to Fenway before? And I was like, what? We're at a bar. I was like, I, I was like, we're currently at a bar with multiple Red Sox media members. I've never met you before. You see me with my press pass. You're asking me if I've ever been to Fenway before? You live down the block. Ha- what? <laughs> Damn. So. Oh, well, well, to be, to be clear, I chirp you for being a Red Sox fan because it's my due diligence as a Yankee fan. doesn't matter. Right, and I do girl, the same to you. Girl guy, black, orange, it doesn't matter if you're a Sox fan. going to chirp you. Um, yeah, I wanted to just touch on um, the fact about how – we can't just be like silent advocates. We have to be kind of put our voices out there for equality in sports with regards to men and women. And I, I was just happened on your Instagram page, girl at the game. And I noticed that your most recent post with um, Grant Williams. Oh, the Grant Williams Yeah, one. the Celtics player. I'm a big, I used to live in Tennessee, so I'm a big Tennessee Volunteers fan. He's a former Vol, so I really appreciated that. But the fact he that is, he, yeah. he's repping the WNBA sweatshirt and then he's chirping back at, uh, at people on Instagram who, who if you look at any Instagram comment section below like a woman's sports highlights might be the worst worst thing on earth the comment section on those pages but i appreciate the fact that he's actually get back in the kitchen and make me a sandwich exactly (laughs) but he's literally in there like trying to have conversations with these people about you actually should watch try watching the game sometime um so i really appreciated that post um your whole your whole instagram i I like the the approach on that but uh, yeah i really like that how nba players are becoming more advocates for the WNBA and and anyone who works within the sports industry needs to, I think, I feel like it's great that we had you on here in order to shine light on that. Um, because I think a lot of people want to turn a blind eye to it. hundred percent. I don't know if you guys saw this, but the, the Suns had a tweet or no, not a tweet, an Instagram. And they wrote the WNBA season begins tomorrow, support women's basketball. Good luck at Phoenix Mercury and like a hashtag. So some guy writes back, no one cares. And the Suns replied, Kobe did. If he's your inspiration, like, like your page says, you'd support women's hoops. And I thought that was such an epic dunk. But also it's true. Like if you have a mom that you love, if you have a sister, a friend, a wife, a girlfriend, a daughter, and you're out here shitting on women's sports, I don't know how you look those women in your life in the eye. Because these are just somebody else's woman. These are these women are also somebody's wife or daughter or mother, you know, mother. And that's what it always comes back to is like, would you, when people say nasty things to me on Twitter, I'm like, would you show your mom this tweet? Would you say this to your mom or your sister or your daughter or your wife? Cause you're saying it to me and I'm somebody else's sister and daughter and you know, girlfriend. That's what it comes down to. It's basic human sensitivity, but unfortunately that's a huge concept for some people. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these stigmas are, are so embedded in our society. It's hard to really uh, kind of get ourselves out of that, but one, one step at a time. It's real. I think the silence thing that you mentioned, um, the last thing I'll say on that is I, it's, that's what it goes, th- goes for, for everything we talked about today. Like if you're silent on women in, you know, women experiencing sexism and all these kinds of things, if you're silence, if you're silent about racism, if you're silent about anti-Semitism, you are complicit in those things continuing and God forbid growing. Like, it's not enough to be not this. It's you got to be actively anti this. Yep. And I said it better myself.
Hey, Gabrielle, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. I, I mean, I, one thing I've learned about you is that you are the person to have uncomfortable conversations with. You have, there's something Love about, it. there's something about you that I just, I'm going to put that on my resume guys. Make, thank you. <laughs> you kind of just like, it doesn't feel comfortable. I'm blanking on the words probably because I haven't had dinner yet, but you just, it doesn't feel uncomfortable having uncomfortable conversations <laughs> with you. And I think Love we can it. all agree that's one of the many reasons why you're going to do big things in this world. And we're so hyped to see that we really are. We really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us. Um, yeah. So I think, we, I think all four of us are on the same page. Our, our motto is let's end the stigma and continue, let's the, continue conversation. the conversation uh, oh, yeah. regarding mental health. That's the, that's the stigma. Yeah. And every, and everything else and everything yeah. else that we talked about. Um, so yeah, all the above. All the above. All the above. It's really great knowing that we have we have guys and gals like you on our team, and we're all fighting for the same cause. Absolutely, yep. guys. Thank you so much for having me on. This was truly such a joy. I mean, I love talking sports with people, but I one of the reasons I started Girl at the Game is because I wanted to have those conversations that are about sports, but also the bigger issues that kind of play out in sports. And I love what you guys are doing so much because this is so important. Appreciate that. Well, we love what you're doing. So for our listeners out there, you guys can. Go uh, check out Girl at the Game. That's the handle on Twitter, Instagram. You also have a website, girlatthegame.com, where you have your blog posts up. Yep. And you do a podcast as well. Yeah, we have the Girl at the Game pod once a week. Trying to do two, but, uh, you know, as you guys know from editing and recording right. podcasts, yeah. it is a lot of work. Yeah. Um, yep. But I would love to have you guys on too sometime because, I mean, you guys ask me all the questions pretty much. So I want to be able to hear from you guys next time. Absolutely. Let us know. We'll be there. Absolutely. All right, Gabrielle. Thank you so much again and have a great rest of your night, day, whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.